If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 13. There are those defining moments and events that shape history. A different decision here, a defeat in battle there, and history would take a very different course. And thinking about this, I'm reminded, for instance, in the Civil War, how much differently things would have turned out if the Confederate Army had taken the hill of Little Round Top at the Battle of Gettysburg. I can remember sitting in third grade and seeing the space shuttle challenger blow up shortly after it left the, pa- the pad and I can't help but wonder if the space program would be in a much different place if that tragedy had not yet happened. Likewise for the people of God the book of Numbers shows us such a history making event, a very pivotal point in the life of God's people. The book of Numbers begins where the story leaves off at the end of Leviticus. The people are still at Mount Sinai and they are receiving instruction for how they are to live as the people of God. God has told them that they are to live holy lives because He is a holy God. He has given them the tabernacle where His presence will dwell and He has given them the priesthood as a way to worship the Lord, offering sacrifices to Him. Furthermore, the priesthood was there to be, as well as the tabernacle, a reminder of God's presence among His people Israel. And so God tells the priests, go throughout the people, teaching them about my holiness, but also reminding them of my presence among you. Mediate my grace, as it were, to them by pronouncing a blessing upon them. And in chapter 6 of the book of Numbers, we find that blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. The blessing is a promise and an assurance of God's gracious presence among His people. It's the fulfillment of the promises that God made to Abraham so many years ago. And yet as God now begins after, shortly after this giving of instruction and blessing to His people to, to lead them to the fulfillment of Abraham's promises even further into the land of Canaan, we see in chapter 11 the people beginning to grumble and complain about their journey. We come to our text that in chapters 13 and 14 and we see Israel standing as it were on the verge of seeing the fulfillment of of God's promise, further promise to Abraham. Just as he had promised that he would come and deliver them from Egypt, and just as he had promised that he would make them a people unto himself, and he did that by entering into covenant with them at Mount Sinai, giving his covenant to them, giving the the grace of his law to them. So now he has led them to the land of Canaan in order to give them a place to dwell. But as Israel's on the verge of entering the promised land, they make a drastic misstep that changes the course of Israel's history for the next 40 years. Once more, they refuse to trust God and they lose the land. This morning, as we continue looking through the the storyline of the Bible, book by book, we come to this book of Numbers, and through the lens of chapters 13 and 14, we want to see the themes that run through, and really the message of the entirety of the book of Numbers. And this morning, we will see three themes that run through our passage, and so the entirety of the book of Numbers, and as so far as we understand these themes, 
who not only understand what God was doing in the life of his people Israel and how he expected them to respond to him, but we will also see what God desires to do in our lives today as his people and how he desires us to respond to him. This morning, because of the length of our text, we'll do a little bit differently than we usually do. We will walk through explaining, observing the three themes that we see here, and then at the end, as it were, I will try to thread the needle and bring it together through the lens of the gospel and apply it very specifically to our lives. So the first theme that we want to see is the theme of fulfilled promises. The theme of fulfilled promises. And I would invite you to follow along in your copy of God's Word as we read most of Chapter 13, beginning at verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord, all of the men who were the heads of the people of Israel. And these were their names, from the tribe of Reuben, Shemua, the son of Zakur, from the tribe of Simeon, Shaphat, the son of Horai, from the tribe of Reuben, Shemua, the son of Zakur, excuse me, uh, uh, from the tribe of Judah, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, from the tribe of Ishakar, Igal, the son of Joseph, from the tribe of Ephraim, Igal, uh, excuse me, from the tribe of Ephraim, Hoshea, the son of Nun, from the tribe of... Benjamin, Palti, the son of Raphu, from the tribe of Zebulon, Gadiel, the son of Sadai, from the tribe of Joseph, that is, from the tribe of Manasseh, Gadai, the son of Susai, from the tribe of Dan, Amiel, the son of Gamaliel, from the tribe of Dan, uh, from the tribe of Asher, Sether, the son of Michael, from the tribe of Naphtali, Nabai, the son of Vashti, uh, Vashai, from the tribe of Gad, Giguel, uh, the son of Machai, These were the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, and Moses called Hoshea, the son of Nun, Joshua. Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, Go up into the Negeb and go up into the hill country and see what the land is, and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, and whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not. Be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin to Rehob near Lebo Hamath. They went into the Negev and came to Hebron. Ahimon, Sheshai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, were there. Hebron was built seven years before Za'an in Egypt. And they came to the valley of Eshkol and cut down from there a bunch, a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between two of them. They also brought some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the valley of Eshkol because of the cluster that the people of Israel cut down from there. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land, and they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, We came to the land which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negeb. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea along the Jordan. May God bless his word. The Lord tells Israel to send the men in to spy out the land so that they will see what they are about to inherit. 
Understand that sending in other spies is not about deciding whether or not to take the land. They're not saying, go in and see if it's a good land, and if it's a good land, then we'll go and take it. No, God has already said, this is the land I'm giving you. I'm about to send you in to take possession of it. Go and see what it is that you are about to have. God is seeking them to see and to understand that he is fulfilling the promise that he made to Abraham. You will remember from our message in Genesis that God made a special covenant with Abraham. He called him by his grace out of his pagan worship in the land of Ur and disconnected his former life from his life now set apart to live for the glory of God, a life of worship to the one true and living God. And as part of his covenantal promises to Abraham, God told Abraham that he would give him, though he had none at this point in his life, a very old man, a son from his own line, from his own body, that would provide many descendants. And those descendants, in fact, would be so great that they would number as a large nation. And God would not leave them to wander around the world but he will provide for them a land in which to dwell. And here God is showing his continuing fulfillment of those promises. Just as the sun was had, just as the people of Israel grew to a nation in Egypt and he redeemed them out of that, so now he is going to give them the land. And in fact, the point I think is being made all the more so of God fulfilling his promises to Abraham by virtue of the fact that we're told that these spies went to Hebron. Now I know for some of you, that means zip. <laughs> I mean, let's just be honest. Sometimes we're reading the Bible and the places and the people names, they just kind of fly over our, our heads and we're like, yeah, so what? What's the point, right? It's not like we would say, you know, uh, God sent Abraham to Detroit and then over to Ann Arbor where he was. We'd be like, oh, we got it. That's just right down the road, right? Well, we have to understand what's going on here from the Bible's perspective. If we were to, to look and see the significance of this place, Hebron, it would be immediately apparent to us what God is doing. For Hebron was the place where God brought Abraham. It's a very high place where one can survey, as it were, the land of Canaan from the top of a mountain. And he said, look, all of this I'm going to give to your descendants. This is the land I'm going to give them, Abraham. And now this is the same spot that the spies have been under the providence of God. And they're saying, and God is saying, this is the land I'm giving you, just like I told Abraham. What's more, this is the place where by faith, Abraham buried Sarai, Sarah, and had himself buried at Hebron. They are literally standing over the bones of their father Abraham to whom God made the promise, one day this land would be for your people. It would be akin in a very small way of standing on Plymouth Rock if God had promised that one day you would travel across Europe and inherit America. The point of sending the spies into the land was to excite Israel about the beauty and the bounty of the land to cause them to rejoice and give praise to God, not only for the fulfillment of his promises, but for the glory of the gift that he's giving them. The spies say, we have come to this land which you have sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. It's above and beyond anything we could have hoped for. It's better than anything we ever had in Egypt and definitely what we had in the wilderness. This is paradise but they don't give praise to God. There is more. The spies not only see the beautiful land, they also see the many many people, and they say, however, despite how good it looks, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large, and besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. All of it is filled with people. What are we going to do about these people? 
Now, you have to understand, it's not like God said, go in and, go in and look how beautiful the land is and just don't worry about those people right now. Just, just ignore them. Just pretend they're not there. No, I think when he sends them, he wants them to see those people. He wants them to see these vast and strong people that live in this land of Canaan. The question is, why? Why would God want them to do that? I think it's an opportunity for them to grow in their faith. Because, humanly speaking, Israel cannot take the land. Humanly speaking, Israel is not capable of defeating all of these armies. And they know that. And the opportunity is there for them to say, yeah, but God has brought us this far. He's going to continue to be good on His promises. Therefore, let's go into the land. That's what He's wanting them to do. And frankly, that's the way it is with all difficulty and hardship. If you're taking notes, this is something that you would want to write down. God does His greatest work in His people, not in removing difficulty from their lives, but by being with them as they go through it. God does His greatest work in His people, not in removing difficulty from their lives, but by being with them as they go through it. Why? Because if God just takes the obstacles away, we don't need God anymore. If God causes life to be so easy and so nice and wrapped up in such a nice little bowed gift that, that we're able to handle it all by ourselves, guess what that means? We don't need God anymore. We just say, that's all right, God. I, 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 got, it. I got it from here. No problem. But if the crucible of life crushes us down to the point that we have nothing that we can do, then God has given us the opportunity to look to Him in faith and trust in Him to preserve us through that difficulty. It causes us to not only know because of the truth of the Bible, but to experientially know God is a God of power and of grace, a God who sustains His people in the worst of times. And I know that today many, both inside the church and outside the church, are, are still worried about the financial difficulties that we are in in this country. And I certainly do not want to minimize it or to say that those difficulties are not real. In fact, we just found out our insurance is going to be uh, doubled uh, very, very soon. And that's, that's, not, that's not pleasant, particularly when you have a budget that you're working with. Um, but at the same time, whether it's a financial struggle, whether it's a spiritual struggle, our first impulse should not be to, to yell out to God, Why don't you get me out of this? Why don't you get this difficulty out of my life? That's not the point point is to say, God, I need you. God, continue to be with me. God, you've promised not to forsake your people. I am one of your people. Do not forsake me now. Be with me. Give me the strength I need. Give me the grace I need. Give me the wisdom I need to ride through this difficult time. What, what's the result of that? You trust God more at the other end, and God is glorified more because of it. Well, the first theme that we see there is fulfilled promises. The second that we see is faithless grumbling. Picking up at verse 30. Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than us. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report. That is, they lied. A bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed, we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. 
Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. So far, we've not got very far into the Bible as we've been looking at its storyline, but there has been one consistent characteristic from this first generation of Israelites rescued from Egypt that we have seen over and over and over again. Grumbling discontent. Over and over again, they grumble and they whine and they complain. They grumbled as soon as they were rescued out of Egypt. They grumbled multiple times about the food. The water's not good enough. We don't have enough meat. And then when God does provide food, they complain it's too bland. God literally sends them bread from heaven, as it were, that they don't need to bake, they don't need to maintain, they don't even need to worry about saving because every morning it's there waiting for them and they say, God, can't you change it up a little bit? It's getting a little old. Can you give us a little something else? I mean, we're getting sick of this manner. Who likes it anyway? Complain, complain, complain. And now is no different. Ten of the twelve tribes begin to grumble to the people. And Caleb tries to calm them down to his defense. He says, come on, don't worry about all that. Look at what God has given to us. We can go up and take it because he is with us. But the people aren't listening. They go so far as to give a bad report. They lie and exaggerate about how bad the land is. They said, oh, it's got great, it's got great fruit, but man, it's wild there. There's beasts and anyone who lives there, they just get killed so easy. And there's even giants in the land walking around. There's no way we could ever defeat them. And those ten keep it up and they keep it up and they keep it up, grumbling and complaining, grumbling, to the point that we read all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night. They cried And then they began to grumble themselves, the entire people against Moses and against Aaron, the two highest human leaders in Israel. And you can imagine all the kind of things that they were saying. It's all their fault, you know. They're the ones that brought us out here. It's been their plan from the beginning. They're the ones that are doing this to us. But then it gets even worse. They say it would have been better if we just died in Egypt. Better to have died in Egypt? Really? You'd rather be dead? Then where you're at right now? It gets even worse, though. They accuse the Lord of bringing them out there to die. And then they say, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. And you know, at first, I, you know, my thinking was they don't like Moses anymore. You know, they, well, let's get a new leader at least. But they've just most recently been talking about the Lord. And so I have to conclude that they're saying, we don't want this kind of a God to lead us anymore. We need a new God. A new God who's not going to lead us into the wilderness, into this place where people dwell of armies too great go back to Egypt but think about what think about what that says it's not just a rejection of God think about what Egypt was like when they left I mean it's not like oh we're, we're moving we're moving houses we're moving across town this was Egypt we're talking about this was the place of their enslavement. This was the place where they were abused without abandoned by the slave masters, where Pharaoh did whatever he wanted and in fact said, they're getting so big, we're going to start killing them off by drowning the babies. That's where you want to go back? It would be like Jews from 50 years ago saying, let's go back to Germany. Let's go back to the camps. Let's go back to the ovens. It was better there than here. It's blasphemous. 
How should the people have responded to what they saw in the land? We're given a glimpse in the attitude of Joshua and Caleb. In verse 5 of chapter 14, we read, Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people, The land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, He will bring us into the land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Joshua and Caleb here display genuine faith in the Lord. They trust in His goodness and His provision, and they trust in His power and His protection. They believed God had brought them to this land flowing with milk and honey, and He was the one that would continue to bless them year after year after year while they were in the land. And because it was God who had promised them the land, it was God who was going to also give them the land, and therefore they had nothing to fear from anyone else. It doesn't matter how large the cities were or how powerful the armies appeared. The Lord was on their side. He would give the victory. Therefore, they needed to fear no man. No man. Even in the midst of their testimony, the people respond in hardness of heart. Look at verse 10. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. Joshua and Caleb said, don't rebel. Have faith in God. Don't fear those people. Let's go in and take the land. And the people's hearts were so hardened against that. They literally said, let's pick up stones and kill these guys because they're speaking a bad word against us. And it's God himself who has to come in and save them from being wrongly executed. In the end, what we see in all of this grumbling, all of this complaining, it all stems from one thing, faithlessness. A faithless rebellion against the Lord. The people simply don't trust Him. They simply do not trust Him. And that lack of trust leads them to doubt His goodness and His power. And in the face of Israel's unbelief, the Lord says what most of us are probably thinking by now, verse 11, the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? Now, if you're anything like me, you read that and part of you cringes because you know you've grumbled. You've complained. I found myself in situations far less difficult than this. And, it's, and I've been irritated and I've complained. And you realize suddenly it means I don't trust God. It means though I'm trusting Him for my salvation... Somehow because some, I've entered a traffic jam on a six-hour drive, now I've, now I've lost faith in him because he can't control a traffic jam, so now I've got to grumble and complain. And if you're like me, you find yourselves suddenly cut to the deep as you hear God say, how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? This leads to the last theme that we see in our passage in Numbers, merciful judgment. We've seen fulfilled promises. We've seen faithless grumbling. And finally, we see merciful judgment. The Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I have done among them, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a a nation greater and mightier than they. But Moses said to the Lord, 
then the Egyptians will hear of it. For you brought up this people in your own might from among them. They will tell the inhabitants of this land that they have, they have heard of you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them, and a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give them that he killed them in the wilderness. And now please let the power of the Lord... Be great, as you have promised, saying, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children of the third and fourth generation, please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from, Israel, from Egypt until now. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. But truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have yet put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give their fathers. And none of those who despise me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went and his descendants shall possess it. Now since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by the way to the Red Sea. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel which they grumble against me. Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. And of all your number, listen to the census from 20 years ago and upward who have grumbled against me. Not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. But your little ones who you said would become a prey, I will bring in. And they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. And your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years and shall, sh and shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, forty days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity forty years and you shall know my displeasure." I, the Lord, have spoken. This will I do. Surely this I will do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. And the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing up a bad report from the land, the men who brought up a bad report of the land died by plague before the Lord. Of those who went to spy out the land, only Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh remained alive. Some of you will remember Washington Redskins quarterback Joe Theismann. He's the guy who thought so much of himself in college that he legally changed his name from something else to Theismann, which rhymed with Heisman. Very confident about his football abilities. And when he was divorcing his second wife, he excused his infidelity by saying, God wants Joe Theismann to be happy. That's probably common thinking today, isn't it? God just wants me to be happy so that I can do whatever I think makes me happy. But we make a mistake, don't we, of believing that just because God says He is merciful and that He abounds in steadfast love that He will never judge or punish anyone. 
somehow we think sin will be excused because God loves us, but the Bible is clear. The wages of sin is death. Sin will be punished. And few passages point that out as well as this one. Israel, frankly, at this point in their history, deserved to be wiped off the map. I mean, just obliterated. And what God said that he was more than willing to do, just to completely start over and bring about another nation through Moses and fulfill one of the promises of Abraham, a descendant of Abraham, God would have been fully just in doing. In fact, this is, again, one of the reasons why I'm not God, because that's exactly what I would have done. I would have said, gone, we're starting over right here. And yet, Moses prays for the people. Now, frankly, that in and of itself, Moses continued intercession for Israel throughout Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. That deserves a whole sermon series. Suffice it to say, he prays the Lord on their behalf, and he asked the Lord to spare them. But this is crucial. Did you see why he asked the Lord to spare them? He doesn't say, God, they're my people. I love them. Please have mercy upon them. God, I know they'll do better. They really didn't mean it. Please spare them. God, you know the offerings will go down and the poll numbers with it if you kill them. People don't like that. They don't like judging sin. They don't like that kind of talk. That's not what he said at all, did he? What did he say? He said, God, if you wipe them out, your name will not be glorified. He said, what does that mean? Moses says, look, God, you have, you have boldly and gloriously redeemed them out of Egypt. All the world saw how you struck down the gods of the Egyptians. They have seen as you have taken them from Egypt now to the very edge of Canaan. The cloud leading them by day, the fire by night. All the world now in this area is talking about what you have done in saving this people. And if you just wipe them out now on the verge of going to the promised land, you know what they're going to say? That guy Yahweh, that God who saved that little people Israel, he was not powerful enough to defeat the gods of the Jebusites. He was not powerful enough to defeat the gods of the Amalekites, the gods of the Canaanites. And so he just laid waste to his people in the wilderness. Moses says, God, you will lose glory. The people will not look to you in awe and give you the worship that you deserve if you wipe out your people like this. How many of us pray that way? I was just reading... Last night, in fact, from the journals of Amy, Amy Carmichael, a single lady who did missions in Asia, and she talks about one time a man being demon-possessed and hearing about it and going very quickly, straight in, and praying that this demon would, would come out in Jesus' name, and the demon didn't come out. And Amy Carmichael's frustration, she cared for the man, she cared for the family, but her main frustration was the glory of Christ has now been diminished. Because in my arrogance and in haste, without prayer, without, without anything, other than a thought, I just went and said, in Jesus' name, come out. And God did not honor that request. And so now in the lives of all these people watching, the glory of Christ has been diminished. That was her all-consuming drive and concern. I've done something that has diminished the glory of Christ. Now, she did what Jesus said. She went back, she prayed, she fasted, and then she came back, and the demon was gone. But I wonder, in this text and from her life as another example, I wonder how often I wonder how often our consuming desire is the glory of God. The Lord still brings His judgment, but He does show mercy. 
He says, I will wipe out Israel, but only this faithless, grumbling generation. The next generation I will preserve, and I will bring them back to the land that I promised them 40 years from now. We are doing an an immediate about face and leaving Canaan, though I will bring this next group back. We'll do this all over again, and they will be the ones that get to go in to the promised land. And just to show that I'm I'm not kidding around, immediately those 10 leaders who gave the false report, who went in with Joshua and Caleb that came back saying, no, we shouldn't take it, it's too much. God immediately strikes them down with a plague and their bodies are left right there. And he says that is a foretaste of what is to come for the next 40 years. Though you are going to come under attack and experience difficulty from all kinds of things, both spiritual and physical, you, the unbelieving faithless generation, I will allow to die in the wilderness, but I will preserve your children. I will protect the next generation and I will fulfill my promises to Abraham through them. The sad thing is when we look at the rest of the book, we never see this faithless generation ever, ever repenting or turning back to God. They barely acknowledge they've done anything wrong at the end of this text. And in fact, if you read on the rest of the chapter, they immediately try and say, okay, we know we messed up, we're sorry, Let's, let's go ahead and go take the land. And they get their rear ends kicked. They're literally kicked right back out of the land by the Canaanites. Ran back out. Half of them are are killed. And you know Moses is saying, you just don't get it, do you? You just don't get it. You don't trifle with a holy God. You don't do that. Judgment comes upon you. Yet despite the sin of that first faithless generation, God is true to His Word. As we'll see next week, He preserves that next generation to enter the land. Well, what about us today? As I read Numbers, I came away with two thoughts. First, it was kind of a depressing book that all those who experienced so much of God's power and glory ultimately turned their back on Him. Can you imagine seeing the plagues? Can you imagine sitting in your house in the midst of broad daylight at high noon while the rest of Egypt is in pitch black? Can you imagine experiencing Mount Sinai with the voice of, literally hearing the voice of God boom out of the thunder and the lightning? And yet still saying, I just don't trust him. Why isn't he better than this? Grumbling and discontent. Yet I also found the book to be incredibly comforting that despite the people's sins, God always remained faithful to his promises. The character of God never wavered, never changed throughout the entire book. And just as those Israelites have sinned, so too we have sinned. And just as God was merciful in His judgment, He has been merciful in judging us only more so. For He allowed the judgment that we deserve to fall on the shoulders of Christ who stood in our place. The punishment that we deserve for our rebellion and our grumbling and our sin, God says, I have sent a final offering to appease my wrath against all of that and so much more. And if you will simply look to Him in faith and trust me, trust in the promise that I will save you and forgive you through Christ, then you will be forgiven, you will be redeemed, and you will forever be my people. And I hope this morning that you have not played at trusting God like that first generation of Israelites. I pray that when the voice, just as when the, the voice boomed out from the mountain and said, if you will do all that I command you, you will be my people and I will be your God. And the people said, yeah, sure, we'll do whatever you ask. And then turned right around and broke all the commandments. I hope that that kind of playing at faith in God has is, is not been your experience. But like Joshua and Caleb, you have truly a different spirit within you, even God's spirit 
that he has given you and caused you to call out with genuine faith in Christ. Moreover, for those of us that are Christians, for those of us that are God's people, we are meant to learn from the bad example we see here in Numbers. And 1 Corinthians 10, one of the, the rare passages where we actually have a New Testament uh, author directly commenting on a passage in the Old Testament, Paul, Paul has this in mind, and this is what he says to the Christians. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the age has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. For no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Friends, just because you claim the name of Christ don't think you're above temptation to sin. Don't think you're above the temptation to grumble and lose faith just like these Israelites were. Paul says there is no temptation out there that is not common to man. That means you are susceptible to that. Calvin said, the seeds of every sin lie dormant in our hearts. And all it takes is the right circumstances, the right cultivation, the right watering to see them flower into a toxic plant of sin. And Paul here says, look to them as a bad example. And so for us, whether it's physical hardships or unending oppressive temptation, we can never allow ourselves to grumble and complain about our circumstances. Why? Because we should never be able to doubt God's goodness to us and love towards us. That's Paul's argument in Romans 8. Do you remember, do you remember how it goes? He starts by saying, much like, much like Joshua and Caleb, if God is for us, who can be against us? That's nice, Paul. But how, on what basis do you make that claim? The very next verse. He that is God, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see what Paul is saying there? Paul is saying, look, God has already given us his very best. He's given us his son. While we were still sinners, God loved us and sent his son to die for us. What more could he possibly do? How, what more could he possibly do to prove that he is both faithful and just and merciful and loving? So now if God has given his very best, why would he withhold anything that you need? Why? Paul says, it doesn't make any sense why. He won't. That's why with confidence he can say, if God is for us, who can be against us? Even when life is both pleasurable and painful, God will remain true to his word and be with his people. And so our first instinct when we face difficulty should not be to call it an exasperation and say, now what are we going to do, God? How are you going to get me out of this one? No, instead we need to remind ourselves the same thing the Lord God reminded Moses. In Numbers 11, Numbers 11, the people are crawling out, crawling out for, 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 for meat. And God says to Moses, don't worry, I'll take care of it. I'll provide meat. And Moses, in one of these times, I'm sure, just beat down by the people. He says, how are you going to do that, God? And if God smiles, I know he was smiling when he said this to Moses. Has the arm of the Lord grown short? Moses, you've seen all that I've done. You've seen me part the Red Sea, for goodness sake, and you walk through on dry land. Do you really think providing food for the people is something I can't handle? And so when we find ourselves with the temptation to grumble about things, stop and ask yourself, 
Has the arm of the Lord grown short? Do you really think God can't work in this situation? Do you really think God has abandoned you because of some tough situation? Do you really think God has stopped loving you? William Carey is considered the pioneer and father of the modern missions movement. He was an untrained man who simply read the scriptures and believed with all his heart that all men everywhere need to confess Christ as Lord in order to be saved. And he looked at the great multitudes of the world who had no Christian influence whatsoever, no Christian scriptures, no missionaries. And he says, something must be done. Something must be done. And he felt God calling him to leave the comfort of his home for the cause of Christ overseas. And yet he faced resistance from his own church. He said he shouldn't go. Once in India, he faced financial hardship. He also faced the death of one of his sons, the mental breakdown and death of his wife. After years of translation work, at one point, a fire reduced virtually all of his work to next to nothing. And it was only towards the end of his life that he began to see a substantial response to the gospel. Kerry had every reason in the world to grumble and give up, but he didn't. Instead, he repeated his life, his, as it were, his life motto, Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. So how, how could he do that? Simply this. The belief that brought Kerry to faith in Christ was the same belief that drove Kerry to India for the work of Christ. And it was the same belief that kept him going even in the midst of difficult circumstances as he worked for Christ. And so today as God's people, as we stand, as it were, on the edge of our eternal promised land, the spiritual and glorful, the all-glorifying presence of God, whether in heaven now or someday in the new heavens and the new earth, like Carrie, we must see the folly of the Israelites grumbling and rebellion and press on in faith, knowing that of anyone, of anyone, God has shown himself faithful and worthy of our faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word, which not only gives us explicit directions to encourage our hearts and convict us of sin, but Father also gives us examples, good examples to follow like in Joshua and Caleb, and Father, bad examples to turn away from. Father, we pray, Lord, that you would be with us, that you would encourage us, causing us to call out to you in faith and not with grumbling and complaining. For Father, you have always revealed yourself to be faithful to your word. Father, this morning to your people, you have promised that you would not leave them or forsake them. Father, you have promised that all things work together for their good. Father, we pray that you would use that to buttress our hearts against temptation and cause us with joy to live by faith in you. We ask all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.